Stay with us following this week's Crosswalk for a special segment on why sanctity of human life matters. Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. There have always been wars. There have always been famines. There have always been earthquakes. But never in the history of the world have we had so much information about those things. Never in the history of the world have we known so much. Does it seem to you like there have been an increase in both natural and man-made disasters? There have been earthquakes all over the world, tsunamis, hurricanes, and more. There have been wars and political uprisings being reported constantly on the evening news. So are these signs of the end times? There has been a dramatic increase in the amount of knowledge that we have. By the way, that's really actually what Jesus says. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. It is this increase of this knowledge that seems to be an indication that we are nearing the end times. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. Today we continue our study of Matthew chapters 24 and 25 in a series entitled 2012, The Days After Tomorrow. Pastor Clay is walking us through Jesus' teaching about the end times as he answers his disciples' questions about what to look for and when these things will take place. As you'll hear Pastor Clay say today, what we're learning about the there and then should help us in our here and now. Thanks for joining us for this exciting teaching on the end times. Now here's Pastor Clay with The Days After Tomorrow. We are studying Jesus' teachings on the end times. Primary place, not the only place, but the primary place where he does that is in a teaching that is known as the Olivet Discourse. It's called that because he sat down on the Mount of Olives with his disciples and in response to a series of questions that they asked him about the end, he begins to deal with that. This morning we're reading again. Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 14. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming, and of the end of the age. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. And then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world 
as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 14. We are now, I think this is our third week in this series, 2012, the days after tomorrow. And we spent the first week looking at uh, the the framework or the groundwork that set up those three questions that the disciples asked. And we looked at those three questions that the disciples asked. And then last week, we dealt with the first indicator, if you will, that Jesus seems to give about the end times. And the first one that we looked at, and we spent all really of last week looking at, was deceived spiritually. In verse 4 and 5, Jesus says, see that, that no one misleads you, many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, I'm the deliverer, I'm the one who has the answer, I'm the one that can, can get the whatever all that they will say. Many will come and they will deceive many. It is an indication, it is an indicator of the end times events and that the closer we get to those end time events, there seems to be an implication in Jesus' teaching that those things will increase. And we walk through all of the the false Christs and the false religions and the growing amount of spiritualism in the world today. The world is a very spiritual place. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the world is a very godly place. Today, in time, we're going to jump through this pretty quickly, but I want to go into the rest of these indicators and hopefully get all the way through verse 14. So we began last week with, with deceived spiritually. We pick it up this week with the second indicator, which is destroy physically. Verses 6 through 8 again say, You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom in various places. There will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. As I mentioned last week, and as the, uh, we just read in here, and I mentioned this last week, uh, there have always been wars. There have always been famines. There have always been earthquakes. We know that. They've always been a, a constant part of our world. But never in the history of the world have we had so much information about those things. Never in the history of the world have we known so much about those things. There has been a dramatic increase in the amount of knowledge that we have. Because that, that, by the way, that's really actually what Jesus says. He says, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. It is this increase of this knowledge of the events that are transpiring that seems to be an indication that we are nearing what is referred to as the end times. Think about it. If a hundred years ago, if an earthquake struck Haiti like the one that struck it last year, and a hundred thousand plus people were killed, there's a high probability that the farmer in North Carolina or the shop clerk in Iowa or the factory worker in Michigan never even hears about that event. It's only been really within the last 50 years that technology has advanced to such a degree that it has made the world a very small place. I was thinking about it. I was in China uh, a few years ago um, with, uh, with Bill Hopkins and, and Rick Freeman. And we were in a, in a very, 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 very 
very, very remote place in, in China. It was up in the mountainous region near the Burma border. And as far from civilization as you think you can possibly get. We were with a missionary up there. Um, and all of a sudden he turns to me and says, you want to you call Cindy? And he gets his cell phone out and he dials it. And it sounds like, it sounds like she is next door. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. The world has become a very small place as a result of the increase of, of the knowledge that we have of the events that are going on. A, 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 an earthquake and the subsequent tsunami that hits Japan last year has an almost instantaneous effect on Wall Street here in America. Because... A destructive event in J- Japan means not only the terrible loss of life, and it was thousands and thousands of killed, but it means uh, an economic uh, downturn for the nation of Japan and an economic uh, upheaval in Japan means the people of Japan are in an economic crisis, and if the people in Japan are in economic crisis, they're going to be importing less things from America. And if less exports are going out of America to Japan, American manufacturing companies get in trouble. And when American manufacturing companies get in trouble, they have to lay people off. And when they have to lay people off, those people can't afford to buy the things that they were buying. And if they can't afford to buy the things they were buying, then other American companies get in trouble. And all of this begins to happen almost instantaneously. And Jesus indicates that it is a sign that we are growing nearer and nearer to the end. Now, it can be argued that, well, we, we don't really know whether earthquakes or famines or, or, you know, all that kind of thing. We don't really know whether we are seeing an increase in those things or not. Because in the past, hundreds of years ago, we didn't have the ability, we didn't have the technology to track those things, to monitor those things, to record those events when they happen. And so we don't, we can't really say that there has been an increase in earthquakes or whatever else. That's true. We didn't have the technology. It didn't exist back then. They weren't able to record nearly as many earthquakes as we can now and the sensitivity to the instruments we have and all that sort of thing. But what we can say without any question is that the increase in the knowledge of those things is is unparalleled. We know instantly what's going on all over the world and its destruction. We also know That as the population increases, as cities enlarge, and as they expand, naturally there would be an increase in the number of deaths and the destruction as a result of these events when they occur. It's an indicator of the end times. Now, there's a couple of things that Jesus mentions in here that that I wanted to point out. The first is, see that you are not frightened. You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. Oh, okay. I think that's a, a fairly astounding statement. Matter of fact, the very f- famous uh, preacher, Donald Gray Barnhouse, commented on this verse and he said, These are either the words of a madman or they, they are the words of God. Because nobody else would say, Now you're going to be hearing about wars. You're going to see wars, rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened. 
the Greek word that is translated in the New American Standard as frightened is thoreste. Uh, it's an imperative verb that means be disturbed. It has a negation in front of it, may. Jesus is saying, do not be disturbed. When you hear of these things that are going to happen, do not be disturbed. In other words, when, when everybody else is looking around, and I don't know if you've noticed, but the world is a very nervous place right now. Have you all noticed that? The world is a very nervous place. Everybody's wondering what's going on. Everybody's wondering what's going to happen. Everybody's uh, uncertain about the future. Everybody's uh, fearful of, of all the events that could happen. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to be like everybody else. And so when the world is wringing their hands and saying, oh, oh my, what is the world coming to? We already have the answer to that one. It's coming to an end. And we can look at those events and we can say, hey, you know what? You know what this is telling us? This is telling us that God is in control, that God has, is telling us in advance what's going to occur. And so we can trust him in these events. We don't have to be disturbed. We don't have to be fearful. We don't have to be anxious like everybody else is. Now think about that in the application of your daily lives. All of the stuff. Forget you know, whatever all else is going on. But all of the stuff in your life that causes anxiety and stress and worry and fear and uncertainty and doubt and depression. Jesus is saying, you don't have to be disturbed by this. Jesus is saying, I, I got this. And if I'm God enough to know about the there and then, I'm God enough for your here and now. If you'll trust me. So, widespread destruction is going to come. But followers of Jesus don't necessarily have to be disturbed at the thought of these events that are coming. And then this other thing that he says here. He says, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. And that's what I want you to grab a hold of. All of these things that I've just described here, Jesus talks about, they're simply the beginning, they're merely the beginning of birth pangs. Both the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 13, verses 1 through 6, and the apostle Paul in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3, use a woman in labor, a pregnant woman in labor, as an analogy for the great tribulation period. Just to remind you, the great tribulation period is that, that time talked about in Scripture, the last literal seven years on this earth before Jesus Christ returns to establish His earthly kingdom. Both Isaiah and the Old Testament... Paul in the New Testament used this analogy that Jesus uses here. They use this analogy as a picture of the, the events that will occur in the great tribulation period. Um, I'm not a woman. I have never given birth. Although I, I have been in the room when birth was being given. Rough, rough. <laughs> But when, when, a, when a woman goes into labor, or even prior to the actual labor, sometimes uh, some of you ladies that have, have given birth um, experience what we call false contractions. Although, I was thinking about this, I mean, they're not, 
I'm not a medical doctor, but they're not really false contractions. I mean, you're not having a baby yet, but they are the body preparing and moving a woman towards labor. And then even when the actual labor time begins, now ladies, I'm speaking from a man's point of view. Okay, I understand. But, but the labor begins relatively easy, uh, relatively uh, painless, but, but steady. But the closer a woman comes to delivering her and her husband's child, the greater the intensity and the frequency of those labor pains, lasting literally right up to the minute, right up to the second of delivery. And Jesus says, when you see these things, when you see the widespread destruction, when you hear of these things, make sure you understand that this is leading us right up to, hey, listen, folks, the end is not here yet. We're not at the end but the labor pains have certainly begun, or it would appear so to me. So that's an indicator that he says, destroy physically. Here's a, a third one. Despise godly. Verse 9, follow along with me here. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because of lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. There seems to be a transition in Jesus' teaching. And we're early in the teaching. We're just in the first 14 verses. And the Olivet Discourse is all of chapter 24 and chapter 25. But there seems to be a transition from verse Eight, which says, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs, to verse 9, then they will deliver you to tribulation. You will be killed and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. There seems to be a transition in his teaching from talking about those, those birth pangs, those, those indicators that, that have always been, but that we'll see an increase in our knowledge of those things and in those actual things leading up to, but then he seems to move into this actual event, the great tribulation period. Again, a literal seven-year period of time that takes place just prior to Jesus Christ returning to establish his kingdom on earth. Now, if I am right about my... uh, pre-tribulational eschatology, what's referred to as pre-tribulational eschatology. If I'm right about that, then we won't, we being those who are, have given their lives to Jesus Christ, we won't even be here when this event transpires. When the great tribulation comes, we won't even be here. The church will have been taken out, snatched out, raptured out, whatever term you want to use, but we'll no longer be here. Just for your reference, eschatology uh, simply means the study of end times. Eschatos means end. Theology is the study of, just the study of the end times. Pre-tribulation is the belief that Jesus will call his bride, the church, up to meet him in the air pre or prior or before the great tribulation period begins. That's my eschatological, that's my end times view. If I'm right about that, and by the way, I don't mean to say it's just me. Uh, you know, I'm the only idiot in the world that believes that. <laughs> There's a lot of us idiots that believe that. 
So, but if, if I'm right about my understanding of those end time views, we won't even be here when the great tribulation period occurs. But there will be people coming to faith in Jesus Christ during that terrible time known as the great tribulation period. As a matter of fact, if you happen to be here with us in 2010 when we walked through the book of Revelation, you may remember me saying, and if you don't remember it, act like you did, it'll make me feel better, but you may remember me saying that many scholars believe that more people will come to faith in Jesus Christ during the Great Tribulation period than all of human history prior to that. People will be coming to faith in Jesus Christ. They will be giving their lives to Jesus Christ. And those people will come under severe persecution for their faith. Because of the Antichrist and his one world government, because of the Antichrist's false prophet and his false religion, they will be persecuted severely for their faith in Jesus Christ. Because of all the events that will be transpiring... Famines and and earthquakes and destructions and wars and literally hundreds of millions of people who will be killed during that time. Ladies and gentlemen, it's not called the Great Tribulation Period for nothing. Because of that, many people will, will, will lash out at these people who have faith in Jesus Christ and they will they will be despised. The godly will be despised. And even though you and I are not yet in those times, we're not in the end times, not in the actual end times, great tribulation period, like the wars, like the earthquakes, like the famines, like all those things, we can see a run-up to that time in our time. And we see it today in the increase in the opposition to Christianity. I read a book a few years ago, and I'm sure I've mentioned it to some of you, uh, called The Heavenly Man. It's a story of a pastor in China, uh, Pastor Hume. Quite honestly, I, I wish every professing believer in Jesus Christ would read this book. But if you read this book, be prepared to think very little about your faith and your walk with Christ. Be prepared to recognize how little we actually sacrifice for the cause of Christ because it is a remarkable story of persecution and suffering as a result of a man's faith in Christ. See, here in America, quite honestly, we're we're kind of sheltered from this stuff. We've been kind of sheltered from it. Um, Although that's changing even here in America, I think we're going to see an increase in persecution on Christians but, but, but we don't realize how much persecution, how much followers of Jesus are being persecuted in the world. As a matter of fact, I came across a statistic a few years ago, uh, and, and I was blown away when I read it, but I'm quite sure that it's true. But it said that more people were put to death for their faith in Jesus. More people were killed for their faith in Jesus Christ in the 20th century, the century we just came out of, than the entire 19 centuries prior to that. Total. It is despising the godly, and we shouldn't be surprised if we see it. Now, I know I need to wrap this up, uh, but, but let me try and finish this for you as best I can. What this, what this means is that, and I mentioned this last week, Satan doesn't 
care about what I call safe Christianity. Satan doesn't care if we stay inside of our little buildings and we sing our little songs. He doesn't care less about that. But when Satan gets nervous is when the people of God begin to go out and engage the culture around us, begin to engage our fellow students and engage our fellow workers and engage our neighbors. That's when Satan gets nervous. When the people of God begin to stand up and say, bad news, we're all sinners and separate it from God. Bad news, because of the holiness of God, we deserve hell. Bad news, all the good works and all the religion and all the money in the world can't change that one little bit. But good news, God loves you. Good news, God has sent his son to redeem you. Good news, God has bought the victory on Calvary. That's when Satan gets nervous. Ladies and gentlemen, that's when the enemy's armies are mustered to come against the followers of Jesus. And I'll say it again, sadly, too many of us have said, well, if Satan's going to you know, come against us, we better, we better just keep a low profile. We, we better just sit down and, and shut up. And, and I'll say this again, the idea that we would do that is unconscionable. We can't do that. We have to speak up. We have to speak out. We have to tell them. Ah, so much more to say about that. But I want, I want to give you one more real quickly uh, before we go. Declare victory. Verse 13 and 14 says this. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. Verse 13, by the way, is not saying that somehow... In the great tribulation period, people just hanging on to the end, hiding out somewhere in, in a cave or something, that if they just make it to the end, that spiritually speaking, they will be saved. Salvation has always come through faith in God's redeeming work, and that's the only way a person is redeemed. What it's referring to in verse 13 is that there are actually, although millions of people will die, there actually will be followers of Jesus that will make it through the tribulation period. They will be saved, they will be delivered because Jesus Christ is coming back, ladies and gentlemen. He is going to put a stop to the whole mess and establish his kingdom on earth. Thank you. Verse 14, by the way, is not saying that the gospel has to be preached everywhere before the church can be taken out. It's a reference to, almost certainly it's a reference to the 144,000 converted Jews mentioned in Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 14 who will go everywhere declaring the gospel, which means good news, declaring the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen, here's the thing. God has declared the victory. That's good news. God has won the victory. That's good news. God has given the victory to us through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And that is good news for us. Because we've heard. But what about everybody else? Because here it is, ladies and gentlemen. The gospel is only good news if it arrives in time. That quote I came across recently has plagued my mind since I read it. The gospel is only good news if it arrives in time. That is why Cross Culture Church was birthed. 
to be a group of people that understand that victory has been obtained, but somebody has to go tell everybody what Christ has done. My prayer, my prayer in 2012 for you, for me, for this church, for the church, is that the passion statement of cross-culture church would not simply be written in our bylaws or, or, or on our documents, that it would be written on our hearts. And that you and I would be consumed with the idea of taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. The gospel is only good news if it arrives in time. That statement expresses the urgency with which we should answer the call as fully devoted followers of Jesus. As we heard today, the closer we get to the end, the greater the opposition to us, but the need as great as well. As Pastor Clay reminded us, we're called to storm the gates of hell. Of course, the great news is we're not alone. We go out in God's power and share the message of Christ. We don't have to be fearful of what is happening or what will come because God has already declared the victory. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. Cross-Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. We have a little treat for you today. I haven't done this in a while, uh, but it's Q&A time at Cross-Culture Church, and it has been a while since we've done Q&A, and uh, clearly six of you are excited about it. So... um, but periodically at Cross Culture Church, we uh, take a question, and we have, we have those cards back there, by the way. They're at our, at our connection point uh, table, but there's the cards back there that, that say, what does the Bible say about, and people can write on there anything they want to write, and then periodically we'll take one of those questions and try and deal with it from the perspective of God's Word. And so uh, if you have a question, you can take advantage of that. Drop it in the offering box as well. We'll try and deal with it. Uh, but today I've asked uh, Dr. Eric Clary uh, to come, who's part of Cross Culture Family, um, and uh, deal with uh, some questions in regard to the fact that uh, today is nationally recognized as Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Um, not sure if you're aware of this or not, but today, it, today literally, is not only recognition, but the anniversary, January 22nd, 1973, um, the Supreme Court ruled in, on Roe v. Wade uh, legalizing abortion in this country. And so since that time, or 
actually starting in the 1980s, our nation has recognized a day uh, to talk about sanctity of human life, the value of human life. And because uh, Eric specializes in the area of ethics and his studies and, and in his teachings, I've asked him to come up and uh, for uh, us to just discuss a couple of questions this morning uh, very briefly. Obviously, this kind of subject matter uh, we could talk about uh, for weeks, and we actually have done some of that in the past. But I want to begin with this question for uh, Eric this morning to deal with. Eric, uh, let's start with this question. What do we mean uh, by the phrase sanctity of human life? All human life, because it's been created in God's image, and that's what we get from Scripture, right? In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God tells us that he's created human beings, male and female, in his image. And so when we talk about sanctity of human life, what we're saying is that human life is valued because it's made in God's image. All human life, doesn't matter how young, how old, how functional, how dysfunctional, all human life is made in God's image, and so it's to be respected. So in regards to that, and and you specifically mentioned, no matter how old, no matter how young, no matter uh, what the status of life, it leads to the second question, which looks like this. Um, In what ways could we say today is uh, human life under attack? Human life is under attack really across the entire spectrum from the earliest beginning of life uh, to, its, uh, to its end, to the final breath. On the back end of uh, that spectrum, uh, we have uh, just increasing pressure to adopt uh, or to accept euthanasia as a legitimate medical option for dealing with uh, the aged, the infirm, who are in uh, oftentimes uh, considerable uh, suffering. Uh, you know, the notion that uh, we ought to kill a patient uh, to uh, deal with their uh, condition uh, really uh, has no basis in Scripture, far from it. Really, it's a lie that I think is born straight from the pit of hell. But we'll see increasing pressure to adopt euthanasia as a legitimate option uh, for dealing with uh, patients uh, uh, near the end of uh, life. Already, the state of Oregon has uh, enacted physician-assisted suicide uh, through the legislature. There are other states that have uh, essentially brought uh, uh, physician-assisted suicide uh, to, uh, uh, to an acceptable state, either through judi- judicial fiat. Uh, so we'll see continuing pressure for that, uh, for that to occur. So certainly there's a lot happening on the back end of uh, life as it concerns the assault on human life. Uh, in the middle, even for the healthy, Uh, I think there is a a blatant disregard for the value of human life, and we see it uh, certainly uh, most clearly just in uh, the increasing murder rates, violent crime. But honestly, I would say uh, that no less concerning really is uh, the disregard for human life that, uh, that permeates much of what passes off in our culture as entertainment. Whether uh, we're talking uh, TV dramas, blockbuster movies, sporting events like UFC. If you watch them long enough, you'll see human life uh, disregarded. You see human bodies violated, desecrated, treated like rubbish, all for our viewing pleasure. So even, even in the midst, even for the healthy, human life uh, is under assault. I would say that with most observances of Sanctity of Human Life Sunday that occur, really the focus often is on the evil of abortion. 
elective abortion in particular. Abortion on demand, as some people call it. Uh, you know, honestly, that, uh, that's been dragging on now since 1973, right? So we're, you know, approaching 40 years after Roe versus Wade, which legalized abortion on demand uh, in our nation. Many people, I'm very certain, would just love for the abortion controversy to go away. But I would say absent a mass revival in our nation, a mass turning to the gospel of life through Jesus Christ, I'm not particularly optimistic that that controversy is going to go away because as Christians we have the obligation, not the option, but we have the obligation to advocate for justice. You know, in, uh, in the book of Micah, God presents his requirements uh, pretty clearly, where Micah, the prophet, writes, what is it, uh, O man, what is it that the Lord requires of you? And specifically, God responds that we do justice, that we love mercy, and that we walk humbly before our God. Doing justice is very much a part of what it means to be a God follower. And so we simply can't turn a blind eye to the injustice that happens or that occurs in our culture and around us. There are many, uh, many types of injustices, uh, but particularly on sanctity of human life, you know, our focus is on the injustice of abortion. You know, since Roe v. Wade, I think right now conservative estimates, e- even estimates that uh, those who are proponents for, for abortion would not challenge, they would estimate that somewhere over 50 million children have been aborted. In, in the United States. That's not worldwide. And so that's really where, you know, the, the lion's share of the focus is, is often on. But on the front end of life, it's not just abortion. It's the uh, increasing desire and capacity through reproductive technology to control the outcome of human reproduction. You know, it used to be that, you know, folks just had to wait till nature, you know, delivered the baby, till there was birth to see what, see what they had, right? Boy, girl, whatever, right? But, uh, you know, nowadays, uh, increasingly, doctors can help people control what actually goes into the womb and then what stays in the womb. In China, there's been a longstanding policy, their one-child policy, where the government there was trying to control population growth, and so they told the population that, for the most part, you can only have one child. And in Chinese culture, it was a big deal to have a son. So if their first child came out and it was a girl, or if they found out that it was going to be a girl, then there was great pressure to abort that child. Right now, China has this massive uh, population imbalance. I think it's like 30, 35 million more males than females, and that creates all kinds of social issues. In, in America, uh, there is some gender selection that's going on. Doctors can help, uh, can, uh, can uh, permit uh, couples to find out the gender of their uh, baby. Even in, the, even in the Petri dish in the laboratory, through embryo selection, they can do that, but certainly through amniocentesis. And they are, uh, some folks are choosing the option to abort. But I think more concerning in the states just about the control of reproduction are all of the embryos 
that are sitting on shelves in frozen storage. Reproductive technology can be a great good when it helps couples give birth to a child. But when it's used to select children, then at the same time it's being used to deselect children. The choice to select a child of particular attributes, be it gender or absence of certain defects, is a choice to deselect. It, what it's essentially saying is, you know what, some children just aren't as valuable. Some children aren't worth having. This is not just theoretical, by the way. I mean, it's, it's playing out. Nowadays, it's estimated that somewhere about 90% of all children who are diagnosed through prenatal tests as having Down syndrome are aborted. And for any of us who have lived long enough, you know, who lived before prenatal testing was really available, you know what I'm talking about. You don't see very many Down syndrome children, not near as many as we used to. And that's because they are being aborted to meet certain preferences of the parents. And so uh, the control of reproduction is real. We have embryos as well sitting on the shelf in these laboratories, most of which will never see the womb. They'll expire on the shelf. Or, increasingly, they're being shunted into medical research. They're being dissected and destroyed in the laboratory, all for the purported good of the health of others. The interests of the embryo aren't being protected. Rather, it's the interests of other people, patients. Medicine's a great thing. I think it's an expression, can be an expression very much of God's uh, grace uh, and God's charge for man to take dominion. But when it's used uh, against God's clear commandment against the shedding of or the taking of innocent life, then medicine becomes uh, an evil. So lots of ways that human life is under assault. That's just uh, honestly just a very brief survey, however long that was. I don't know, will we have, Clay, five, six minutes? Did we just, did I just burn the whole time right there? Yeah. Let's Sorry not, about that. Not even go there, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> we could talk more uh, and more, but. And there is much to say. And, and, and Eric says, uh, has said this before, and I'll just let you know, um, Dr. Clary is always available to talk to anybody. They have questions about uh, reproductive questions or quality of life and all those types of things. Um, it is an area that God has laid on his heart and that his studies have been in. And if you have questions, he's always available to that. Uh, the response for us as believers in Jesus is to value the life that we have, to value the, the, both the aged and the newborn and the unborn and uh, all of those to demonstrate and share and show the love of Jesus Christ in tangible ways and pray that God's Spirit would work in our nation and in this world in such a way uh, that people would make decisions, life choices based on the truth of God's Word than, rather than on personal preferences or social pressures or anything else like that. Dr. Perry, thanks for sharing with us today. Th- we really thank you, Clay. I appreciate it. If I could just add one more thing. Sure. And, and I'm sure How can I say no to you? Well, you're, very, you're very kind. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it is very much about uh, helping Christians to make decisions that honor God. But at the same time, also our response as Christians is to bring the gospel uh, to, uh, to those who are faced with uh, or presented with these types of decisions. Right? And so... You know, our message is not just one negative, which right. is to say, you know, this is 
these are the commands of God. We need to obey these commands. It's a positive message as well. It says, you know what? We're all sinners, and we're all saved by the grace of God. We've all committed sin, and so we're all in need of God's redemption. And so God's grace extends to those who have been mired in these various uh, maladies. And so the, the message is not just one of, of judgment. God's judgment stands on its own. Our message is one of, hey, there is uh, forgiveness, there is redemption, there is transformation available through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the message that we should be taking to our neighbor, to our co-worker. If we're politically uh, active, uh, that very much needs to be part of uh, the message that we bring. Thank well you, said. Sir. Well said. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. Thank you.